1: Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figger, and Carrie's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Kieran Setia. Kieran is Professor of Philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His research is focused on moral philosophy, epistemology, practical reasoning, and philosophy of mind. His new book is titled Midlife, Philosophical Guide, and it's published with Princeton University Press. Now, middle-agedness is a curious phenomenon. Uh, In many ways, one is at one's peak, uh, but also at the early stage of decline. There's a lot uh, to do, but dozens of paths that are irretrievably untaken. There's success alongside regrets, and so it's no wonder that the idea of a midlife crisis is so familiar culturally. But midlife is not commonly a subject of explicit philosophical study. Now, as the title of his book suggests, Kieran places midlife at the center of a sophisticated inquiry, combining philosophical argument with a mode of advice-giving that I should add is refreshingly not preachy. Setya has produced a fascinating reflection on growing old. Now, there's a lot to talk about, but why don't we start, as we usually do, by greeting our guest, Hello, Kieran. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't you start us off uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Yeah, I grew up in England, in the northeast, in Yorkshire, um, but not in the picturesque part of Yorkshire, in Hull, um, sort of post industrial part of Yorkshire. And um, I got interested in philosophy as a teenager um largely from reading the uh American sci-fi horror weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft um right. yeah so i i was uh i i I still like Lovecraft but what i i realized that what i was most gripped by in his work was the the sort of philosophical dimension of exploring other possible worlds other other possible kinds of beings, the, the ethical and metaphysical and epistemological questions he was raising. Um, and Lovecraft himself was very interested in philosophy, so I started reading philosophy, uh, reading the philosophers he had read, and that was sort of my my initiation into philosophy.
1: Can you, just from my own curiosity, I, 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 I'm not aware of what were the philosophers that, that Lovecraft seemed, um, you know, had read? So he was he had a
0: very eclectic sort of range of philosophers he was interested in. So a little bit of Bertrand Russell sure. um philosophers like Hugh Elliott and Ernst Heichel, who at the time of sort of turn of the twentieth century were significant public intellectual figures who nowadays are not taken that seriously. And then earlier, um Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, and then sort of classical philosophers. So he was very interested in the sort of classical um atomists, Democritus and uh um the sort of pre-aristotelian pre-platonic um philosophy
1: that's very interesting i would have guessed the schopenhauer but um yeah next time i open up a a copy of a lovecraft book i'll keep an eye out for that it's fantastic
0: the uh the path from there to to really studying philosophy was um uh went through going to to university in the uk and then coming to the us for graduate school and then since uh then, which is more than 20 years ago, I lived in the U.S., which is why my voice sounds like this. Um, <laughs> sort of, uh, uh, I have an accent that my friends make fun of when I go back to England. But uh, yeah, that's that's more or less the, uh, the bit of bit of my biography that has to do with getting interested in, in philosophy.
1: Oh, fantastic. Um, so, why don't, then I ask a, a, a sort of quasi continuance of the autobiographical stuff and just, so, um, the book is a, uh, this is an obvious opening question, I suppose. The book is, um, a, uh, a philosophical guide to midlife. It's called Midlife, a philosophical guide. Um, you are a very accomplished professional philosopher. Um, this is a book that, um, uh at times describes itself as a kind of self-help book um why write uh, a book of this kind
0: that's a good question i mean there are lots of registers on which i can answer that one is that the is really personal which is to do with um uh, having reached a sort of career point where um i took a step sort of stepped back and took a breath um i'd um I had been lucky enough to get a job in philosophy and get tenure and the, the sort of structure of the career that forces you to keep looking at the next thing, that was sort of lifted. And I could, I could think, well, what do I want to do with, with, um, philosophy? And, uh, even though I knew I was extremely lucky to be in the position I was in, the thought of just teaching another class and then another class, and then another class and then writing another essay and then another essay and then another essay seemed uh, weirdly to me, both obviously worthwhile and strangely empty. Um, and I, I thought that was, that was both distressing emotionally since I I'd sort of got what I wanted and that I, this is, it was a career I had been dreaming of since I was a teenager. I really felt like this was a, a sort of life's ambition realized. And there was something disturbing about realizing that, um, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't making me happy in the way that I thought it would. Um, but fortunately it was also intellectually puzzling and that I thought, how can this be? How can it be that you can get what you want and not be made happy by it or think that what you're doing is worthwhile and yet still somehow empty? What, what could be missing there? And so the, the intellectual puzzlement of it became a kind of direction for for further thinking. And so, uh, what ended up happening was that I started reading and, um, reading about the sort of midlife experience and the midlife crisis and also trying to think about what kinds of philosophical ideas might be fruitful in um making sense of that i didn't initially think i would write a self help book i didn't even initially think this would be uh helpful that it was bound to be helpful as opposed uh, except as a, a thing to do that was um would be a distraction from from just a <laughs> just a, um uh, what's the word reveling in <laughs> reveling in my right? malaise? Um, and so I, and I don't think that I think there is a kind of question about complicated question about the relationship between philosophy and self-help in that. Uh, if you're thinking of philosophical investigation of the human condition as a search for the truth about the human condition or as trying to figure out follow arguments where they lead. There isn't any guarantee at the outset that the results of doing that will be consoling. Um it just happened in this case that uh, or maybe it just happened with the you know the, the subconscious uh, uh, operation of, of my own um, wishful thinking or something. But it, it happened that in the course of, of working on the topic, I started to find philosophical ideas that did seem helpful and consoling to me and thought both that I wanted to write about them, but also that if they were helpful to me, they might be helpful to other people and that it might be worth trying to write about. Them in a way that was accessible to a, a broader audience than just the the audience of academic philosophers.
1: Right. Well, the, I should say just for for the people who are listening, uh, you succeed at that. I mean, the book is uh, a, a real pleasure to read. And um, thank you. And it, th- that that's not a. Uh, That shouldn't be understood in a Gricean way. It's a pleasure to read and philosophically very rigorous. uh, There was no implicature there that uh, that the philosophy is lacking. It's a a very uh, accessible philosophy book. So um, uh, bravo. Uh, That's that's not an easy thing to to have pulled off. Um, I wanted to ask um so getting out to the beginning of the book I you know maybe it's just because I you know I, I don't know a lot of uh, of stuff outside of uh, the stuff I know in philosophy um I was surprised and maybe I shouldn't have been to find that um the midlife crisis is a, a thing that had been subject to pretty extended um academic uh, um, exploration uh, in psychology and sociology and whatnot. I, I just thought it was just part of the cultural vernacular. You know, something, something funky happens in the middle of your life and, uh, you deal with it. I didn't realize that there was a sort of a clinical, um, uh, uh, history to the concept. Um, and your book goes through some of that and it's very fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the, the midlife crisis?
0: Sure. I mean, I, there, a lot of things I, I also found surprising about the history of the idea when I started to look into it. One that was um, both surprising and uh, convenient for me was that um, unlike most sort of cultural cliches where you, you try to trace the history and it, it sort of fades into the murky past and uh, it, it's very hard to explain where the idea came from, the midlife, the term the midlife crisis, the, that, that sort of um, expression, has a pretty clear point of origin, which is in this 1965 essay by a Canadian psychoanalyst, Elliot Jacques, who wrote an essay called Death and the Midlife Crisis. And he really describes the, the sort of canonical midlife experience of um, he, he had uh, patients who had sort of reached the crest of the hill. They had they had achieved a lot or their ambitions had either reached fruition or hadn't. And now they were looking at the second half of life as a kind of downward slope towards the grave. Um, and so he has this very vivid description of that phenomenon. And then in the 70s, this idea catches on um, both uh, with um, psychologists who are, are experiencing the same thing and studying it, and also in the, the broader culture. So the, I think a kind of defining moment is this 1976 book by Gail Shee called Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life, that went on to sell five million copies. And it it's uh, a sort of classic representation of the the stereotype of the midlife crisis the the you know sense of frustrated ambition um the sense of needing a new challenge the sense of um uh having the kids grow up and leave home and needing to find something new to do with your life that those sort of cliches are very much cemented by her writing on the topic and then the history is sort of up and down so uh in the, in around 1990, um, the MacArthur Foundation set up this, uh, giant interdisciplinary study, um, called MIDAS, Midlife in the United States, led by Orville Gilbert, Gilbert Brim, who's a social psychologist. And they did a, a study that took about 10 years. They did, they surveyed 7,000 people. And so around 2000, they were publishing their results and the, the, general tenor of their research was to suggest that life was sort of an upward slope that uh, midlife was a period of competence and uh, settled confidence in one's life and greater emotional maturity and resilience and it just got better and better and so there was this sort of crisis around 2000 around the question whether the midlife crisis was a genuine phenomenon Um, and then the latest phase of this so that the current sort of state of play uh, comes out of work by economists, so economists working on um, happiness and well-being who have studied, reported sort of overall life satisfaction by age. And in the last 10 years, um, there have been a whole series of articles initially led by um, David Blanchflower and Andrew Oswald um, that suggest that around the world, I think they've surveyed 70 something countries uh, and for men and women, overall life satisfaction takes the shape of a sort of gently curving U. So it starts high in youth. I think that the highest point is around 20. It bottoms out in your 40s and then it rises again towards old age. And so there's a suggestion that whether or not it reaches the level of a crisis, there is a fairly pervasive pattern in people's overall satisfaction with their life in which the, the sort of middle age years, the, the 40s and 50s, are especially challenging. And while it, people describe this as a sort of shallow U-curve, and it, it, it's relatively shallow, on the other hand, the, the dip or the, the gap between the uh, average life satisfaction that they find at for people who are age 20 and average life satisfaction for people in their mid-40s is roughly the kind of drop in life satisfaction that would be associated with Getting a divorce or losing your job. So it, it's substantial. There is, there's evidence that people in their, in their forties are genuinely and pervasively more unhappy with how their lives are overall than was true for people in their twenties and will be true. This is the good news. Um, probably will be true when they reach, um, 60 and 70.
1: Right. So one other question just about the, um, some of the, the research and maybe some of the history of that research. Um, is there any explanation or, or are there any attempts to explain some of the, um, again, the sort of cultural cliches about what people do? Uh, in response to uh, midlife crises, is there any reason why, um, uh, uh, at least in the states, as the the, the cliches go, you know, there's a a convertible sports car that's purchased. There's uh, uh, a, a, a a you know long you know, engaging in behavior that one have enga- one would have engaged in when one was uh, you know a teenager. Is there any reason why um, it, it 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 seems to manifest in in, in that ba- that kind of behavior? That's I a mean, good question. Well, all I mean, kinds of other things people could do, right? I mean, you know, you could join, you know, you could you could do other kinds of things. But it looks like it's got this um, turning to adolescent things.
0: Yeah, I mean, that definitely suggests that what's going on has has to do with sort of lost youth and wanting not to give up on the the vivacity and freedom of youth. So I I, I think that must be part of it. I mean, a, a difficulty is that that um, in the social sciences, just that it, that the Evidence we have and the data we have is relatively coarse grained. So it's, it's one thing to track, uh, people's overall life satisfaction by age. It's another thing to try and figure out a, a sort of hypothesis to explain what's going on, uh, and that would, might predict different kinds of responses, for instance, buying a fast car and then try and test those hypotheses. So I think that the, the actual social science of trying to explain, um, why happiness has this u-shape and therefore what you might expect people to do on the basis of their drop in life satisfaction is still at a very early stage um i mean my sense is that, that that shouldn't stop us from speculating i mean it's it's one reason why at the moment we might be in the position of thinking well the the best we can hope for here is a kind of introspective approach where you know this is sort of the idea behind the book is where a, a, a somewhat representative uh, uh, midlifer uh, uh, tries to read around what's going on in literary and um, uh, philosophical and cultural depictions of midlife to try and see what the the nature of that experience might be. And um, well, there's two things to say. One is that uh, I, I think in the end that, that there are many things going on. There really isn't just one kind of midlife crisis. There's, there's, sort of sense of oppression and and in daily life there's a sense of missing out there's regret and dissatisfaction with the past there's the greater proximity of death and there's the the sort of frustrating um grind of projects so I think there's it one thing we can usefully do is sort of pull apart those different problems and the second thing to say is depending on which of those is really weighing on you, the responsive of sort of uh sort of nostalgic response of trying to reclaim lost youth might make more or less sense. So um, if the problem you're experiencing has to do with nostalgia for the the array of options that you had, or at least took yourself to have when you were younger, then activities now that sort of reclaim some of those options and sort of, dem- and sort of vividly enact your own freedom uh, in the face of the social constraints and financial constraints of being um, middle-aged, that would sort of make sense. Mm. Um, so but, yeah, I, I think in saying that we're still at the point of speculating about why the cliche takes the the particular shape it does rather than drawing on on established to social science.
1: Right, right, right. So the book then turns to early uh, to a case study of a of a famous philosopher I mean there, the, in the history of philosophy there are some famous crises personal crises but um one of the more famous personal crises is a what we might think of as a premature midlife crisis um that John Stuart Mill writes about in his own case um and uh you you talk a lot about Mill's uh, uh episode um and from there, you, you 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 see that Mill provides the occasion for us to understand uh, something about uh, the kind of value or a particular kind of value that a human life can realize uh, that you call existential value. Can you tell us a little bit about the Mill episode and then uh, the, this idea of existential value?
0: Yes, sure. So Mill was a really inspiring case for me as a model for what I was doing in that he, he was an example of a philosopher who had a kind of life crisis and then did exactly what i following his example was trying to do it just to say well uh something's wrong with my life i wonder what that tells us about the right philosophical account of a good life mm. um and so yeah mill uh that many listeners will know this story but he had this sort of crazy education where his father james mill uh in good utilitarian fashion wanted to maximize the amount of uh happiness that mill's life produced by making him into a kind of utility producing machine and uh so he learned. He he taught Mill. Um, John Stuart Mill learned Greek at age three, Latin at age eight. He did the equivalent of of college in his teens, and then he had this nervous breakdown when he was twenty. And the form this nervous breakdown took was Mill saying to himself, um, "When I imagine all my ambitions being achieved, I imagine the reforms in society that is a good utilitarian." I am working for the reforms that will reduce human suffering and I ask myself, would that make me happy? I think no. Uh, and that is extremely puzzling. Like, well, why would the achievement of your ambitions not make you happy? And it is not that he thinks there's no point in doing those things, that they're somehow worthless, but something is missing. And uh one of the things Mill came to, to think about this comes from his engagement with Wordsworth. So he says that the the sort of malaise in his life began to lift when he was reading Wordsworth's poetry. And uh, there's some very evocative descriptions of coming to appreciate a kind of happiness or enjoyment in life that has nothing to do with struggle or imperfection, um, nothing to do with uh, amelioration of suffering. And so uh, the distinction, I think, that Mill is, is... Pointing to is one that that Aristotle in in the Nicomachean Ethics also emphasizes, and uh, I think, uh, and, and there's a kind of resonance between them. And they both describe the the sort of valuable activity that they have discovered as contemplation. In Aristotle's case, contemplation of um, of God and the first cause and the first mover, and so on. In Mill's case, uh, tranquil contemplation in, in uh, reading Wordsworth's poetry, but. I think the basic distinction is between um, different kinds of activities, both of which have non-instrumental value. So it's not just the distinction between instrumental and non-instrumental value. Even when you're looking at something that has non-instrumental value, value in itself, regardless of its effects, sometimes the value comes from its role in ameliorating some kind of problem or injustice or need that we'd rather be without. So it comes from curing a disease or relieving someone's suffering, where even if it has no further effect, that's worth doing. But on the other hand, it's ameliorative. It's taking away a problem that ideally, in the ideal situation, we wouldn't even have that problem to begin with. And I think Mill's life was built around and focused on ameliorative value, the activities that have ameliorative value. But not all valuable activities, activities that have non-instrumental value are like that. There are also activities that are not only valuable regardless of their effects, but their value doesn't depend on solving a problem or uh, reducing suffering or ending an injustice. Um, and those are the values I call existential. So it could be the value of um, reading Wordsworth's poetry or contemplating philosophy or contemplating God. It could be the value of just spending time, hanging out, playing games with your friends where you're, you're not trying to merely solve a problem, you're doing something that is um, positively good. And one way in which the importance of existential values comes out is in recognizing that unlike uh, ameliorative value, the value of activities that solve problems, uh, existential value, values with uh, sorry, activities with existential value are ones that it would be worth engaging in. It would still make sense to engage in. Even in an ideal world, even if we didn't have problems to solve, and what's more, if they're the values that make life worth living in the first place, again, one way to see this is just to to think about Mill's situation. If the only values there were, if the best we could hope for was ameliorative value, that we could take away suffering or solve problems, then the best human life will be one that was sort of neutral, suffering-free, problem-free, and that's a very sort of despairing vision there have to be things in life that make uh it possible at least for life to be better than that and those are the 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 values that mill had not properly got into view when in his education and sort of came to recognize through reading wordsworth and even though mill's situation is incredibly idiosyncratic both in his education and in his the kinds of ambitions he had for his life I think there is a connection between the, the, the neglect of, um, existential value and a common situation people find themselves in, in midlife, which is the situation of finding that a lot of what they're doing seems worthwhile, but the value of it is ameliorative. It's sort of making sure the kids are fed and they're get, keeping up with their homework and that everything's going okay on that front and, um, you know, going on the occasional date to make sure that your relationship with your partner remains uh, um, satisfying enough. And and it's often framed or also taking care of aging parents. I mean, that's another kind of constraint in life that whether you're doing something that's genuinely valuable, but nevertheless is a response to need or difficulty. And I think midlife is a point when even if you're not uh, John Stuart Mill, obeliorative value can sort of activities with ameliorative value can tend to uh, expand to occupy an enormous amount of your time and to leave that to leave less room in life for activities with existential value that can seem sort of luxuries but i think without those luxuries life really wouldn't be worth living in the first place and it's important to sort of reaffirm for oneself that caring about those things and wanting those things and valuing those things is not a kind of self-indulgence, but a, but an, an affirmation of what makes life positively good.
1: Right. So um, uh, let me ask, um, uh, do you think that the connection between the sort of uh, insufficient attention or cultivation of activities, uh, attention to or cultivation of activities with existential value, uh, do you think the connection of that syndrome to midlife and the, the crises that midlife uh, brings with it has to do with... Um, you know, your, your, your adult life before midlife is so focused on, on, on building things, building a career, building a family, building a home. All of these seem to have at their core, um, uh, value projects that look like they're bound to be largely ameliorative, right? Look like they're bound to be largely connected to the project of, uh, addressing needs, solving problems, fixing things. And then, um, Uh, is midlife just, you know, happens to be a point where, um, a lot of that building is done. And so (laughs) there has to be, you know, those projects, those, those building your life, setting yourself up projects can no longer be the whole story of your valuational or the whole, they, they can no longer have the centrality to your life that they did once they're built.
0: I mean, I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, I think the idea that midlife is a point at which large-scale life projects sort of give out because you either made it or you didn't is is part of what generates one kind of midlife crisis although i connect that with a with a different distinction that we'll probably get to later in the conversation between sort of between telic and atelic activities and i was thinking that at midlife often what happens is that you are still engaged in in ameliorative activities that you know taking care of your parents and your kids and trying to uh uh, make ends meet at work those activities are in a sort of ongoing way um, consuming your life but are just ameliorative and so going back to your earlier question about about why people might buy the the sports car or reach for reach back nostalgically for aspects of their youth one reason for that might be that uh if they were lucky enough to have a childhood that was not also dominated by ameliorative activities. It wasn't um, primarily about sort of just solving problems and making it through the day. They probably actually in childhood had more of their life devoted to these activities with existential value. And I think of my, my son, who's, um, uh lives a relatively privileged life, He has to go to school and he has to do his homework and there's a there's a fair amount of ameliorative activity going on. He has to brush his teeth and so on. But uh, actually, an awful lot of his life, uh, when I look at him enviously, seems to be devoted to doing things that he doesn't have to do, um, but he wants to do. And so I think uh, an envy of that aspect of at least some childhood experiences might be something that that propels a a certain kind of dissatisfaction with life. In the um, uh, heart of middle age,
1: right, right, uh, interesting. So, um, a, a a term that uh, is is now part of the ven- ver- the vernacular is an acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, and you have a chapter about missing out. You think that that's a uh, sort of part of the puzzle of of what makes um, uh, middle agedness a, a kind of crisis occasioning uh, phase of one's life. Um, but you argue that there's there's um something about uh, uh missing out that is um a, a kind of a feature of just you know what it is to what it is to live a value laden life is to miss out on some things that you have to see as valuable um can you tell us a little bit about uh, about how that argument runs
0: yeah sure so the, again i th- I think there is this c- connection between um a kind of very familiar experience, the fear of missing out experience and a kind of uh, more existential uh, uh, form that that can take in midlife where I think often it's a time at which people realize that quite not, not just that they're not going to get to go to the party uh, or that there's a better party happening somewhere else as in <laughs> standard FOMO, but that um, the point in the, at some point that they can't put their finger on the alternative life in which they were a guitarist, is not going to happen or the life in which they um they go to law school instead and become a lawyer that's not going to happen or the the um, the point in life where they have kids it's not going to happen and that the they have to sort of come to terms with people have to come to terms with the ways in which um by living any one individual life there are many other lives that you thereby are unable to live and aren't living and at least for me it, it it's has been helpful to sort of think about what the basis of that phenomenon is and to to recognize the point that you just um sketched namely that it it's sort of an it, it's not um missing out in this way is not um a sign that something has gone wrong in fact it's very hard to imagine what it would how you could avoid missing out Given the sort of plurality of valuable things that one can do, the plurality of diverse, valuable activities that human lives can engage with and um, the capacity of individual human beings to appreciate many of them. And so while in a in a certain way missing out the sense that there are things you won't get to do in life is regrettable, it's an inevitable consequence of something that really isn't regrettable and that we shouldn't wish away, namely the Plurality of valuable activities and our capacity to appreciate them and what a kind of thought experiment that I find helpful in 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 as a kind of um, Cognitive sort of abstract philosophical cognitive therapy is to think well, okay missing out is 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 Painful and disappointing, but what would it be like? What would life have to be like and what would you have to be like in order to? avoid this experience of missing out well the only way that could happen is if you're living a life uh and don't want or don't appreciate the value of, or there are no other values in any of the other ways life could be lived. You'd have to sort of impoverish the world so that really only one kind of life is valuable or impoverish yourself so that you're not able to appreciate the value of other things. So in my case, I think maybe I should have been a, a doctor. I should have... um uh gone to medical school instead of doing philosophy. Or when I was um, quite young, I wanted to be a poet and maybe I should have tried to do that. And yeah, those are lives I won't have. And there's a certain kind of um, poignancy to that. On the other hand, uh, I wouldn't want to avoid missing out at the cost of um, depriving the you know, the world of the value of those activities or depriving myself of the capacity to appreciate what would have been good about those alternative lives? So I think that kind of um, reversal of perspective, thinking about what it would mean not to miss out, is a way to to help reconcile oneself to the inevitability of missing out. Um, I mean, it, the the scope of this argument is in some ways limited. I mean, it's, it's it's focused on the kind of missing out that is inevitable, namely the kind that comes from the fact that we only have one life to live, and that in the sort of garden of forking paths you have to take one path you don't get to to take many uh simultaneously so far it doesn't really address the kind of missing out or loss that comes with um failure or regret or loss or um uh mistakes and misfortunes in your past that's a that problem is still still remains Mm -hmm. to sort of come to terms with but uh at least for the kind of missing out that um, uh, that is just a matter of sort of wistfully imagining other lives you could have lived, I think it's helpful to recognize that that your capacity to wistfully imagine those lives is a reflection of something uh, that you should embrace.
1: Right. So um, let me ask a. A philosophical question in the narrow sense of philosophical. What sense of the plurality of values do you, is is the view? This view of of of, of the the kind of um, appreciation of the capacity to 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 feel like you've missed out. What 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 strength of the view of the plurality of values does that commit us to? Um, on some views, as you know, uh, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know for sure. Uh, you know. Um, Values are plural in a way that um, the pursuit of 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 some values is incompossible with the pursuit of others, but the incompossibility is not due to, you know, life being too short or there just not being enough resources or you have to take one path and you can't take the other. It's that there's something deep in the fabric of value that um Uh, is such that some values bear kinds of incompossibility relations with others. Um, does this view, and, and some people think you need that strong a view to make sense of the, the component of the, the experience of missing out, which is not only that, well, I could have been, I could have been a poet and that would have been good too and maybe I should have tried that, but, um, some experiences of missing out are that I, I could have been a poet and had I succeeded at it, my life would have been good in a way that the, my current life, despite all the goodness that's in it, couldn't be right that there's a distinctive kind of good that gets abandoned when or that was abandoned when I pursued the life of the philosopher rather than the life of the poet. Do we need to to say that kind of thing in order to make sense of the the rich uh, variety of values?
0: I mean, I think some of what you suggested might might go beyond what's required. Right. so I think the idea that there are sort of values that that are essentially incompatible. Um, I think maybe we don't need I think I think the the key phenomenon here I think is is the uh, distinction between values that are commensurable and ones that are not so it's the distinction between sort of decisions where um, so to take something like the value of uh, money which seems commensurable where um, if someone gives you a choice between fifty dollars and a hundred dollars um, you not only take the hundred dollars uh, rather than fifty, but you don 't feel any sense of regret or loss you don 't think, "Ah oh, you know I could have had fifty dollars instead of a hundred th- th- whatever you wanted in the fifty dollars you've got and more um so I think some values sort of relate to each other in that way. I think all it takes to generate the the inevitability of missing out it, that i 'm interested in is that most values are not like that mm-hmm. that um uh whatever you want. In the things that you justifiably want, it's not just a sort of quantity of some homogenous stuff like money. Um, so that if you have more of it, or as much of it as uh, you know, if you have a hundred dollars, or you could have a, a eighty pounds, and they just the same. Uh, given the exchange rate, it's just the same. Why would you care? So long as the structure of value doesn't work like that, you'll get this this kind of inevitable loss. So I think the kind of plurality required is fairly minimal. It doesn't require, for instance, um, the kind of uh, incomparability or uh, sort of the existence of values where it's impossible to say which is greater or which is lesser or k- lives where it's impossible to make the comparison mm-hmm. uh, can make comparisons between them e- even if we can say uh, for any given lives whether they're uh, which ones are better or worse which ones are equally good so long as the ways in which they're good don't are not commensurable in the way uh quantities of money are there will be something to regret in living a good life even when uh the alternatives that you that are thereby excluded are no better Um, They could we could even have a view on which, no, we can measure value so that you can always say one life is better or worse than another or exactly equally good. There's no uh, none of what Ruth Chan calls parity or or sort of um, indeterminacy or anything like that. But so long as the ways in which different lives are good or bad uh, don't just turn on on quantities of a single uh, value stuff. I think you this kind of regret. Is, or, or or sort of loss missing out is not going to be avoidable
1: right 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 that's helpful um, so let, let's pick up with regret then um, uh, as you, you just mentioned so surely uh, at least as uh, as it's portrayed in the uh, in the cultural idiom, um, uh, midlife crises um, of various kinds often involve very centrally um, regrets—a uh, 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 funny kind of retrospective, um, looking back and and wishing that things had had done had been done differently or had gone differently. Um, the key, you know, you, you suggest again that you know a, a, a full, normally uh, a, a meaningful life uh, is not going to be able to avoid avoid um, uh, regrets after a particular time uh, and then you say well maybe the key is to to not to not look too hard at one's past um, can you tell us a little bit about your view about regret and and that that particular piece of advice
0: sure yeah so this this is um, a case of that I'm especially interested in because I think that often when philosophers frame the sort of central questions of ethics they think in terms of um you know pragmatic questions about what should i do or what are my obligations to other people or they think you know what's a good life and the ethical question you know how should i feel about my past how should i feel about my life which i think occupies a lot of people's uh when i think about the ethical conversations i have with friends where we're recognizably talking about you know good lives and how to live them uh, friends who are not philosophers an awful lot of what we talk about is not sort of practical it's not about what decisions to make about the future it's how should I feel about what someone did to me or what I did to them or my childhood? And so I think this is a question that philosophers, um, have somewhat neglected. On the other hand, it's also a question where there's been a, a, a lot of, um, or some recent work by philosophers about regret by, by, um, Robert Adams and Derek Parfit and, um, Liz Harmon and Jay Wallace. So I think there's, there's real potential for philosophy to contribute to this. So I think the starting point is to think, um, uh, about what regret is. So the way I'm thinking about it, the the phenomenon to be addressed is how to feel about mistakes, misfortunes, failures in life, things that when they happened, you should have preferred not to happen, either not to happen to you or, uh, things that you should have at the time not done and, you know, wanted yourself not to do. And then you went ahead and did them. And the thought is, um, the fundamental sort of question is, how far can what you should prefer and what you should have preferred at some time in the past come apart from what you should now prefer uh, in the future or in looking back? You should now prefer to have happened in the past. And how far can those two come apart? And sometimes it, it can seem like there's just no wiggle room there. That just as soon as you recognise that you shouldn't have welcomed something back at time T1, now at time T2, 10 years later, of course you have to regret it. But actually that isn't true. It's, it, it, there are lots of mundane and less mundane cases in which, um, the reasonable preference to have about an event back then is different from the reasonable preference to have right now. So boring case would be things turn out unexpectedly well or badly. So Jay Wallace has an example in which, um, uh, I should go meet. I should, I promised to take you to the airport. So I should, uh, turns out later that the flight you would have, but I don't, um, I do something I shouldn't have done. Uh, but the flight I would have dropped you off, uh, at, uh, was in a plane that had some kind of technical fault and crashed, and everyone on it died. Now I look back and think, well, I'm kind of glad, uh, that I didn't, my, I I'm now looking back at that past event, um, my preference about it has changed. So, uh, there are mundane cases in which what you should prefer to have happened in the past is different from what you should have wanted to do or done back then. The question is, how far does that go? How far can the, can our rational attitude to our past involve a kind of affirmation of things that at the time were unfortunate? Um, that's the sort of, the, the, that, is a question about the sort of leeway we have in midlife or at any point in life, older, older age or whenever we're trying to come to terms with something in our past to, to affirm it, even though it was problematic at the time. And so, um, there's a kind of thought experiment that Eric Parfit, uh, uses to illustrate another really important way in which these two can come apart. He imagines someone who has a, uh, a woman who has a temporary condition that means that if she conceives a child while she has this medical condition, the child will have, um, say, recurrent migraines, some kind of unpleasant health problem. And uh, his thought is, well, she should wait. But suppose uh, she doesn't wait and she has a child and the child has the migraines. But there's her child. She loves her child. And she looks back and now can ask, well, I should have waited back then but now do i wish i'd waited do i looking back is my later preference for what happened back then the same and there's a good case for thinking no it's perfectly reasonable and maybe um, this is how she should feel she should now be glad that she didn't wait because otherwise um her daughter julia wouldn't exist or her son um jamal wouldn't exist so the question is okay this is this suggests that there is a kind of way in which you can sort of launder past mistakes, misfortunes, and failures by thinking about the ways in which the lives of people you now love, people you're attached to and care about, their existence depends on those past mistakes. That's It may not mean that you no longer regret them at all, but it introduces at least a counterweight to regret or a kind of source of ambivalence about the past. And a number of philosophers have suggested that this is not limited to Attachment to particular individuals like the child who otherwise wouldn't have been born, but extends beyond that to attachment to your own life. So there's a this wonderful paper um, uh, about the problem of evil that that Robert Adams wrote um, in the late 70s in which he says, you know, what we're attached to in our own lives isn't just our bare existence, but all kinds of. Um, particular activities and decisions and relationships such that it's now reasonable not to, to, to affirm our actual lives and not to prefer, not to wish for lives that would have been better, but very different. And the, the, the thing I'm interested in in the chapter and, and I could, I could, uh, say more about how this connects with the idea about ignorance. But the thing I'm interested in is there seems to be something right about that mm. idea. There seems to be, it does seem to make emotional and philosophical sense that we can affirm our actual lives, even in the face of alternatives that we acknowledge life could have been better. But I'm very puzzled about why that would be. I think it's 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 puzzling how that could work you know, one way to bring out the puzzle that some philosophers will find helpful is that it's one thing to say the actual existence of a human being who wouldn't otherwise have existed. Their actual existence is a kind of fact about the outcome that can change what you should prefer about the past. But the idea that your actual activities, that the sheer fact that you are actually doing something can make it reasonable to look back and be glad that you decided to do it or that you ended up doing it, that's much more puzzling. That seems like a kind of bizarre bootstrapping whereby... Um, I, I I sort of engineer my affirmation of a bad decision by saying, well, at least I'm actually doing this now. Attachment to my actual activities means I can look back and say, well, I'm glad I made that bad decision, or I wouldn't be actually doing this. That seems really bizarre. So it so seems like a funny kind of adaptive preference. To- <laughs> that's exactly right. Right. I, th- I think I think if you did it in terms of actuality, it would just be adaptive preference. So I think if the argument for for affirmation is just well, I'm now I'm actually doing this. So I prefer it. That would be irrational in exactly the way adaptive preference is irrational when it's irrational. Um, and in that respect, it's very different from the child case. I don't think there's anything irrational about saying this child, this very child would not exist if I hadn't made the decision I made in the past. Um, so I think there's a real contrast there. And um should I keep going? I can tell you more about the, the sort of solution to the puzzle.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, because the, yeah. the the ignorance part is very interesting. Well, at least it's interesting to me. Yeah, please go on. Yeah, so so the 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 proposal
0: I make um is one that I think makes emotional sense. Whether it makes philosophical sense is, <laughs> is trickier. So um it, it it leads to a view that I think some philosophers will find um very surprising. So the thought is um What's the difference between my relationship to an activity um, now that I'm doing it? How is that different from my relationship when I was deciding? Can I simply point to the fact? So t- take my case. So I'm a philosopher. I should have been a doctor. Let's just su- suppose I should have made that decision. I was just too afraid of blood. I couldn't face it. I I was uh, I wimped out. So I should have been a doctor. Now here I am as a philosopher thinking, yeah. That would have been a better life, I guess. Can I now sort of retrospectively affirm my decision to be a philosopher? Well, can I say, well, look, I'm actually doing philosophy. The actuality of this activity is a reason to affirm it over being a doctor. No, that seems like the the bad kind of bootstrapping. Here is one thing that I can point to, though. The reasons for being a philosopher, the reasons why it's good to be a philosopher, even though I acknowledge it would have been better to be a doctor. I know much more about what those reasons are. I'm much more vividly acquainted with the good things about being a philosopher, with, with um, the luxury of being able to think about philosophical questions, with the, the moments in teaching where a student is inspired or a student surprises you or a student uh, um, uh, is engaged or uh, the features of philosophy's history and tradition that make it valuable. I don't just know in general terms, hey, these are some good things about philosophy I don't just know that there are reasons to want a life as a philosopher. I know a huge amount, more than I can express, uh, in words, what they are. I mean, it would take me a long time to talk about all the cool things about philosophy. Whereas if you ask me, um, what's good about being a doctor, I can, you know, gesture towards some good things. Like I would save lives. Um, I feel like I was doing something socially useful in a more immediate uh, practical way than philosophy, I guess. I, I can gesture towards it. And if I've read, you know, Atul Gawande or, you know, watched, um, ER, I might be able to tell you a little bit more about what life as a doctor is like. Um, but it's very sketchy. So here, here's the difference between my relationship to these two lives now and my relationship to them before. When I was making the decision, I had, uh, a kind of general evaluative judgment being a doctor is better. But the reasons why it was better, the reasons why it was good, as opposed to the reasons why philosophy is good, I was equally well aware of, equally ignorant of the reasons on both sides. I could tell you in general terms. Whereas now, even though my abstract sort of assessment of the balance of reasons might be the same, my knowledge of what those reasons are in the case of philosophy is much richer than my knowledge of what the reasons are to be a doctor, what's good about life as a doctor. And so the proposal is um, this is something in the book. I don't talk about the, the sort of the talk about this in such um, technical terms. I have a separate paper called Retrospection where I, I, that does do this. The proposal is that, that um, a principle of specificity is true. And the principle says um, that it's rational or can be rational to be more strongly moved by facts that provide you with reasons. Than, by the fact that there are reasons of that right. kind, mm-hmm. so it could be it can be rational to sort of affirm my life as a philosopher on the basis of reasons uh, to want that life and value that life um, that where my affirmation and thereby my preference outstrip my sense of the the actual weight of those reasons, so what we get is a kind of uh rational or rationally permissible. Acracia or acratic preference, where you can acknowledge that there are in fact more reasons to prefer a than b being a doctor than being a philosopher, but because you know what the reasons are for b uh, you rationally prefer it and i I think that may well be rational, even though it goes against a kind of axiom that I think a lot of philosophers find tempting that whether you know acratic reference, Socratic action is the sort of paradigm of uh, practical irrationality. Right.
1: Right. Well, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And um, I'm curious to go look at the paper because um, uh, th- that view sounds totally reasonable to me. <laughs> oh, Good. good. I, I,
0: my sense is that some of the, some of the examples, um, my experience of it is that the, some of the examples seem to make psychological sense and then, and they seem, they don't seem rational. But as soon as you sort of articulate the general principles, they start to look like ones that that philosophers have have sort of um, reasons to be committed to rejecting. And so um, I think that there's a sort of this is one way in which the the issues in the book about affirmation and regret and the sort of midlife experience connect with sort of big picture uh, questions about the structure of practical rationality
1: right right right. so um we're, we're we're coming to the end of our time together so there's there's a lot of stuff in the book that we're we're, we're not going to be able to get to uh including a, a chapter on mortality but um i did want to make sure that we 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 reserve some time um so the book ends with a um a kind of recommendation or just sort of addressing your reader and saying you know if this is the kind of thing that you know, might, might be helpful to you, you know, you should try it out and see. So you've got a, a kind of, a recommendation for a, a, a kind of meditation, uh, that is a, a kind of mindfulness towards, um, uh, activities, uh, uh, that, um, are, as you call them, atelic or, you know, attending to breathing and these kinds of things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the book ends? Sure, yeah. So for me, this was, this was the most, um, is both the most
0: important and helpful part of of my philosophical sort of approach to midlife and the and the hardest. So uh what it turns on is a kind of distinction among activities between telic and atelic activities. Telic ones are the ones that aim at terminal states and can be sort of completed, so um writing a book or conducting an interview or um having kids or getting married. Uh and atelic activities are ones that don't aim at a terminal state. So it could be, you know, hanging out with friends or parenting or thinking about philosophy. There's no particular terminal point at which you're, you're sort of done with those things. And a kind of diagnosis of my, uh, of a, at least a central part of my sort of dysfunction in, in relation to, to philosophy, which I, I love, I think was that I had very much shifted from just enjoying and valuing thinking about philosophy. The way as a, as a teenager, I was just amazed that this was a thing you could do and that there were other people who wanted to do it, uh, into a mode of, of, of sort of orienting myself towards a succession of completable projects and being, um, excessively invested in, in telic activities. And I think the problem with that is that, um, different ways to bring this out, but one is that when you're aiming at goals, that's what you're really invested in. Satisfaction is always in the future. You haven't got there yet. And once you've achieved it, The goal is now, it's gone. It's now archived into the past. And even worse, your sort of engagement with the project, sort of trying to write a book. If that—if writing the book is a source of meaning in your life, then by trying to write the book, you're trying to sort of take something meaningful in your life and finish it, thereby ejecting it from your life and leaving yourself with a kind of gap in your life. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, an excessive investment in projects is a kind of, it fits the stereotype, for instance, of the kind of striving type A high achiever. It's a it's a characteristic form of midlife crisis, and I think the solution it, it, we can describe the solution in terms of um, the idea of an atelic activity and being more invested in finding more value in atelic activities that don't aim at terminal states, in parenting or spending time with friends, rather than the particular projects that make up parenting or spent things you do with friends. The challenge is that that sort of intellectual recognition that, um, for me, that I need to value atelic activities more and find more of the meaning in my life in those activities, the intellectual recognition doesn't automatically bring with it the, the kind of emotional shift. And so a role that I think a certain kind of meditation can play is in helping to train one's own capacity to appreciate and value the ongoing process of an atelic activity so to take for instance the capacity to just appreciate the value in just breathing or listening to sounds and to slow one's own um, sort of future planning tendencies or the tendency of one's thoughts to sort of leap forward to the next goal or the next thing to get done take that kind of training and um, so far as possible approach other activities in life at least some of the time with the same kind of uh, mindfulness towards the the ongoing process the the value of the atelic like, activities you 're engaged in, not just the projects you 're completing or the goals you hope to achieve and uh so it's, with a certain kind of uh, temerity, I sort of propose that this is this is a kind of practical uh application of of meditation that has a a kind of philosophical justification uh, and um yeah i mean I, I the the book sort of ends by talking a bit about the The relationship between this and the contrast between this way of using meditation and some of the the sort of more contentious ideas in in Buddhist uh, uh, uses of meditation on the one hand and the sort of somewhat more deflationary idea that just meditation reduces stress. That's a good thing on the other hand
1: both of which seem to have a kind of telic component to it right the, the the buddhist view is for the dissolution of the self so there is a there's a funny kind of telos to it right that's, uh, true. that's true although i think this is there's something quite systemic about that problem in that if you're
0: meditating in order to uh, learn how to appreciate atelic activities more. There's a, there is a kind of goal oriented structure to it. Right. That, so there's a, it, like many self help projects, there's a kind of ladder that you have to ultimately hope to be able to throw away, um, <laughs> uh, in, in sort of getting on with your life
1: wittgenstein once again um,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well um kieran you've been very generous with your time and I, I really want to thank you for uh for joining me today to talk about your book midlife a philosophical guide um one last question uh w- w- what will you do next uh that's a, that's a great question it's uh what yeah uh, now what that you've my... learned to get off the treadmill of <laughs> academic philosophy well i exactly
0: so that there's a there's a yeah, there is a kind of uh, a kind of awkwardness in answering the question, what is your next project? Having just said, you know, this obsession with projects, that's the problem. Um, so uh, I, it is true that part of what I want to do and I'm trying to do is just think, no, what are the philosophical questions I want to think about? I should just think about them. And then if essays or sort of completable projects come out of that, let that happen or not. Let that be, be secondary. Um, insofar as I do have a kind of goal, it, it's somewhat more amorphous, which is that I, I am I've been sort of trying to just think through the question how to balance um, writing for academic audiences with the possibility of writing for non-academic audiences, writing for a wider public. So I, I don't have a particular project in sort of public philosophy in mind. But, um yeah, I feel like the next phase of my career will be about trying to do more of that and trying to figure out how to, to sort of fit it together with continuing to be engaged with academic philosophy uh in uh the way I would like to be, since it, it's not that I sort of don't value academic philosophy and want to do sort of wider audience writing instead. The problem is I, I want to do both, then I want to somehow figure out how they how they fit together.
1: Yeah, it is a it's a it's a it's a funny feature of our discipline that uh a lot of us sort of struggle with that question. <laughs>
0: Increasingly I think I think I think the idea that writing for a wider audience is valuable is increasingly commonplace I think the idea that when you do that, um, you sort of, it's dumbed down or, or sort of, um, uh, embarrassing is, is much less common if present at all in the way that I think it was 10, 20 years ago. Um, on the other hand, I think a kind of picture of what to expect in people's professions if they're going to be thinking about public philosophy. We haven't really adapted to that. And I think we probably need to, given that it's not just post-tenure that people are thinking hey i want to write for a wider audience quite rightly lots of younger philosophers are really engaged with doing this and i think the profession sort of needs to adapt a little bit to the to what their profiles will look like when they come up for tenure and to to think about how to properly value the kind of contributions that that um writing for a wider audience has
1: that seems right to me so um um uh, let's hope that uh that the profession as such comes up with, with some good, good ways to, to balance these two things and to, to recognize, um, uh, achievements of the, the, the less straightforwardly academic kind. Um, but for now, uh, I just want to thank you for, uh, for joining me today. Thank
0: you very much. It was great to talk to you and I, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it is, it, it this podcast is itself one of the, the sort of impressive public philosophy outlets that you know anyone can listen to this and it's really great that uh, people can uh get this sort of accessible presentation of philosophical books uh for free online so uh
1: thank you for that <laughs> well i really appreciate that um and uh thank you listeners for joining us today for our discussion of kieran Setya's new book midlife a philosophical guide again it's published by princeton university press um thank you for your time and bye for now